0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Christian Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today it's my great pleasure to be joined by Thomas S. Kidd, author of Who is an Evangelical? The History of a Movement in Crisis, published in 2019 by Yale University Press. Tommy is the James Vardman Distinguished Professor of History at Baylor University, Tommy, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Well, I'm excited to get into the book. Who is an evangelical? But before we we dive in, why don't you share with us just a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure. I've taught at Baylor for about 20 years now. Uh, this was my my first job out of my PhD program. I, I went to Notre Dame and studied with George Marsden uh, there, and and uh, I've been at, at at Baylor and gone up through the tenure track and tenure process and all, all that and uh, it's, it's just a wonderful uh, situation here uh, for me and uh, I'm married and have two teenage boys and so that, that, that occupies a lot of my time these days keeping mm-hmm. up with them. so that's great. So
1: I, I'd like to just hear from you about what l- prompted you into this particular project. So you in the, your subtitle you talk about the, the history of a movement in crisis, you know, what is the, the crisis that you see in the evangelical movement in a nutshell? And then what are some of the main themes that you trace throughout the, the book?
0: Yeah, well, uh, I, in addition to writing books, I also uh, blog at the Gospel Coalition website. And, and uh, obviously, uh, I think any reader uh, seeing this book would, would assume correctly that it has to do in part with the political crisis of evangelicalism, uh, that really came to a head in 2016. Um, but it's, a, it's a crisis I think that's been developing for, uh, uh, decades and, and at least since the 1970s, uh, about the politicization of white evangelicals and, um, the fact that I, I, I think that the media, uh, impression of evangelicalism, uh, uh, is in my view is is pretty distant from a lot of what goes on in actual evangelical churches, especially if you view uh, the evangelical movement as a global movement, which I do, uh, and and I think is factually accurate <laughs> that, uh, that not all uh, evangelicals in the world are uh, white uh, Trump voters, and and so um, there there's a real problem for evangelicals that I think that they've uh, substantially lost control of the public impression of of the movement. And uh, that's that's partly due to media coverage, which is uh, usually interested in religion, only to the extent that religion is uh, connected to politics or scandal. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also connected to the fact that there are uh, a number of strategically uh, placed white evangelical leaders who have, have fed the media narrative about uh, politicization and Republican politics and and their careers have been uh, based on it, uh, sustaining that narrative. So it, it's not as if that, uh, I mean, there are obviously millions of evangelicals in America who at least somewhat fit into the stereotypical uh, uh, narrative, but there's a lot, a lot more to evangelicalism than just w- what is portrayed in, in the media and especially uh, in polling, and so I thought that uh, obviously uh, this is a good time as any to um, to write about that topic. And so I was hoping that um, it would be obviously a scholarly book, but also something that journalists could pick up and and get a, a fairly brief introduction to the longer history of the evangelical movement and how this uh, crisis of politicization and identity came to pass.
1: Yeah, that's that's great, Tommy, and and we'll get into some of how that politicization really started to to ramp up there in in more recent decades. I, I do I do want to note to our listeners I I do agree with you. This is a very readable and accessible book that I hope people will will be able to turn to, and you you start with the 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 origins, the clearest origins of the evangelical movement. Um, in the 18th century, and, I, and I'm curious, you know, how did the evangelical movement get started, and and how do some of these themes like celebrity culture, race, political power, how do those start to emerge, even in the the early uh, origin stages of the of the movement?
0: Yeah, well, there's a, a debate um, among scholars about when evangelicalism began. Uh, there, there's some people who want to uh, dated, you know, basically back to the Reformation, and then there are some scholars who don't think that the evangelicalism of the 1700s really has any kind of valuable uh, connection to what evangelicalism became in sort of the post-World War II period, mm-hmm. but but I, I think that, that there's... Um, at least a number of scholars who think that evangelicalism as a coherent movement really began in the 1730s and 40s um, with the first Great Awakening. And, um, and, and the key figure there is George Whitfield, who was the most important uh, revivalist of the, of the Great Awakening in, in uh, Britain and America. And uh, and he's the best known person uh, in in Britain and America at the time, basically in any uh, profession or, or field. I, I suppose King George is probably better known than George <laughs> Whitfield, but but more people had, had uh, seen Whitfield in person uh, and had read Whitfield stuff than anybody else uh, in in the English speaking world at, at the time. Um, and, and he becomes uh, arguably. Uh, certainly the first religious celebrity of kind of early modern to to modern history. But there's some reason to think that he even becomes the first uh, recognizable celebrity of any kind, um, Hmm. maybe even in world history. And if that's the case, then then he he really is an extraordinarily significant person uh, given what a celebrity driven culture we live in now. Uh, And, 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 there, there were, of course, political concerns uh, among evangelicals, just like uh, virtually all Christians have had uh, political concerns or their faith has had political uh, implications. But I, d- I don't think that anybody would really look at the, the evangelical movement at the beginning and say that this is a fundamentally political uh, movement. I mean, it, it's, it's theological, it's focused on the issues about conversion uh, and, uh, for, for people like Whitfield, certainly about the, the, the felt presence of God in your, in your daily life, uh, that, that is really what was new to George Whitfield uh, when, after his conversion at Oxford in the 1730s. And, um, of course the evangelicals then also had a very high view of the Bible. Um, that, that's, that's another defining trait of evangelicals, but that part wasn't really new. I mean, that, that. That does go back to the Reformation, um, and, and so I think what, what makes evangelicalism new in the 1730s and 40s is uh, the figure of Whitfield, who has such a titanic role in shaping what evangelicalism uh, became, and and then and then also uh, the very close focus on uh, a discernible conversion experience as the gateway into you know an evangelical life of devotion. Um, and the, the the belief that you can walk with God in a discernible, uh, you, you know, felt presence kind of kind of way, um, and so Whitfield, uh, you, you know, is teaching people that the point is not nominal church adherence or going through rituals and so forth, but that that you you have available to you uh, the discernible, uh, emotionally felt presence of God on a day to day, even hourly basis. Um, and, and so that, that sets uh, you know evangelicalism off on a on a new path that I, I think is in, in continuity between uh, the 1730s and and what evangelicalism is today.
1: That's right. And and you you trace this um, emphasis on the individual throughout the, the next period of, of the evangelical history as we move through the Civil War. Um, kind of era before we get into the 20th century, where the more modern version picks off. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how this um, individualized interiorized religion um, really started to manifest tensions within the evangelical movement as it related to, you say, you know, the the issues of slavery and um, and other social, uh, justice or social causes that were happening in the nineteenth century.
0: Yeah, well, uh, race is, is is a real problem for evangelicalism not not a unique problem, but but it, it is a very serious problem for evangelicals from day one. Um, partly because key leaders of the Great Awakening are slave owners themselves, including Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, um, and. And yet, they're usually making uh, more concerted efforts than previous Christian groups, at least Protestant groups, to um, to bring African Americans uh, and Native Americans into the life of their churches and their revivals. And so that there's a real tension between, uh, you, you know, the the idea that uh, they're you're recording in, in their in their revival accounts. Uh, you, you know Jonathan Edwards in the faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in Northampton. Uh, you know says several Negroes you know have been born again, and 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 it turns out that uh, one or two of those are people that he owned, and and so uh, th- there's a, a a real tension there about the kind of spiritual egalitarianism that you see in the first great awakening. Uh, and then the, the social, economic, um, and, and, and racial hierarchy uh, that, that you have in the, in the Great Awakening and the evangelical movement. And so um, th- there's, uh, there's also a tension that develops by the revolutionary period about uh, the, the evangelical view of slavery itself. Uh, there, there's not much uh, anti-slavery sentiment uh, per se in the era of the first great awakening but by the time you get to the revolution uh, a disproportionate number of the anti-slavery early anti-slavery writers uh, both uh whites and blacks are evangelicals um and 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 so then you start to get uh, people like lemuel haynes uh phyllis wheatley uh, other african-american evangelical writers who are at least issuing you know when they can uh, condemnations um, of slavery and the slave trade, and and so there, there's a, a a question that lingers on through the the Civil War about whether this should become, uh, in Edwards' terms, a distinguishing mark of the of the evangelical movement or or not. And I, I think that there's pretty broad agreement among scholars that uh, there there was kind of an early burst of white anti-slavery. Uh, uh, uh sentiment uh that that gets shut down in, say the baptist and methodist denominations uh but but that uh, obviously uh african-american evangelicals are pretty consistently anti-slavery themselves as you would guess uh, but they don't have access to publishing and uh, the financial resources for activism so there's always, uh, you know, social and political movements that evangelicals are getting involved with, but it but it usually is easier for evangelicals to agree on things like the temperance, anti-alcohol movement, uh, than than things like anti-slavery. But there there is a very powerful uh, evangelical anti-slavery movement uh, coming, uh, certainly from uh, African American writers as they have opportunity, and then uh, certain. Uh, white evangelical northerners, um, but, the, but the the white South remains, uh, including evangelicals, remains pretty well locked into the pro-slavery uh, position, and uh, you start to see in the 1840s a uh, breakup of the national denominations, and that certainly includes evangelicals um, in the, the, the Baptist denomination, the Methodist denomination, the New School of Presbyterians have their splits, and um and and it, the inability of evangelicals to agree on that issue is is no small contributor to the the crisis of the civil war
1: well Tommy as we move into the the 20th century so some of those uh interior um and you know ambivalences of the evangelical movement start to coalesce in in this movement that we often hear described as the fundamentalist movement which it sometimes gets conflated with evangelicalism. Um, and, and you note that there was a time where these two were more or less synonymous, but then they sort of part ways. So how, um, how does fundamentalism develop a, a common cause of social action, You know, especially around education, for evangelicals? And, and where did the evangelical fundamentalist uh, camp start to begin to divide?
0: Yeah, well, uh, the, the the fundamentalist movement is definitely a reaction to uh, growing uh, theological liberalism in the denominations and and seminaries, uh, influenced most directly by uh, trends emerging, especially from Germany and higher criticism of the Bible, um, and 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 you're right that there is a period of some decades where. Uh, you know the evangelical movement is basically called the fundamentalist movement. Um, now there there are definitely evangelicals associated with say Dwight Moody, uh, the great Chicago revivalist, uh, who who don't really have the same kind of concerns about say uh, higher criticism and, and evolution. Uh, you know they might have agreed with those concerns, but they're really focused still on conversion and, and felt presence of God and. Uh, and just sort of assume the the authority of the Bible um, where the fundamentalists are really engaged in kind of mortal combat with the the modernists about uh, the the fate of the seminaries and uh, the fate of denominational leadership and affirmation of of the authority of the bible over the claims of the of the modernists um, and and so for a while that's really uh, a fight over Uh, the control of denominational uh, power. Um, But in the 19-teens, the the fundamentalist movement really takes a a pretty dramatic turn uh, into issues about public education. Um, And that that is uh, uh, most famously led by William Jennings Bryan, uh, the the, uh, three-time Democratic uh, presidential candidate, Uh, who was kind of looking for something to do after he got out of the Wilson administration um, and uh, who who was sincerely very concerned about uh, the teaching of evolution in public schools as a, as a real uh, theological and cultural menace. And, and so he, because he was such a a well-known political figure, he, he sort of very easily transitioned into leadership in the fundamentalist movement uh, and, uh, and really turned uh, the concern uh, from uh say the trying to stop the teaching of of higher criticism of the bible in uh in denominational seminaries to trying to stop the teaching of evolution in uh, public schools Hmm. Um, and that of of course culminated in in at least symbolically in the uh, the scopes trial uh, in tennessee in 1925 um, which uh, which Brian uh, you played such a spectacular and controversial role in and then died right after the trial <laughs> just sort of, uh, you know they should make a movie out of that uh, <laughs> the, and 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 inherit the wind it, you know de- ends up depicting this in a play and then and then a movie and really I think starts to p- uh, put a, a popular imprint on uh, on on Uh, an earlier version of fundamentalism and evangelicalism that is uh, political, uh, that is, uh, you know, involved in these kind of newsworthy political, cultural controversies. Um, But I think that there were a a lot of evangelical leaders who at least at a minimum uh, were a little worried about this dominant role that Brian had taken Mm -hmm. uh, as a politician in, in the evangelical or fundamentalist movement. Not that that people necessarily disagreed with his anti-evolution views, but they felt like uh, you know evangelicalism might be getting steered into some political and public uh, areas that were, were were potentially a distraction or a lack of focus on what evangelicals should really be doing, and that is uh, definitely a, a predecessor, I would say, for the the crisis of evangelicalism that it, it faces today in America.
1: And so then it seems as though in the story that you're telling, there's this real turning point and, and it seems like the, the the pivotal scene, at least as I was reading it, was Billy Graham's support of General Eisenhower for the presidency. Could you talk a little bit about that turn? Um, I mean, this is prefigured a bit in the, the Brian taking on of the fundamentalist cause as a politician taking on evangelicals. But now you have this... This neo-evangelical movement reaching out to support um, a political leader. Um, how does that emerge?
0: Right. Well, I think that Graham is uh, the closest parallel to Whitfield in mm-hmm. the history of the evangelical movement in terms of the fame uh, that that Graham takes on. Whitfield was more famous in his time than Graham was in his time. Uh, but but Graham was a uh, obviously just a superstar culturally and religiously in his time too, uh, and, uh, and 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 Graham uh, is uh, but coming to the fore as this incredible celebrity evangelist in the late 1940s. Um, but he's also developing uh, concerns as so many um, Americans are in the post World War II period about the Cold War. Yeah. Uh, and the threat of communism, and and Graham's concerns on that level, I think are are uh, commonplace uh, and and not necessarily unique at all to evangelicals. But white evangelicals do have those concerns about atheistic communism, and this is the era when you start seeing. A lot of this kind of theistic, nationalistic expressions about "In God We Trust" and uh, you know, adding uh, a, a theistic language to the Pledge of Allegiance and, and so forth. And so uh, Graham, uh, because he's so famous, um, he he begins to be courted by uh, politicians, um, and and he also is is open to having a, this political role. That in some ways is is natural uh, and and not not surprising because you know if the if the president calls you and says you know will you advise me on spiritual issues it's kind of hard to say say no um, but but it's also I think a, a dangerous turn that Graham himself at times would acknowledge later in his career that he got too involved with with politics um, and, and so yeah. I, I Part of what I'm doing there with the, his courtship of uh, of Eisenhower, uh, which people like Kevin Cruz and, and others have have talked about uh, at at greater length than I do, but but um, is that Graham sets the pattern for white evangelicals that there's an expectation of political influence. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not the case in in uh, most other countries of the world for evangelicals. I mean, it, it, you know, I've I've spent a fair amount of time with UK evangelicals, for instance, and there's absolutely no expectation that they will have political influence because they're just too small, uh, and they don't they don't have those figures, uh, you know, in spite of Billy Graham's visits with Queen Elizabeth and so forth. They, they just don't they don't think in terms of of having a chair at the table in the political process. But in America, they do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's set by, by Graham most significantly in the modern version of it. But it also means that Graham is uh, very, very close to people like Richard Nixon um, and even having Nixon speak at evangelistic rallies uh, for him. And Graham is one of the last people who, who sort of realizes what, what a uh, charlatan that, that Nixon is. And so that, that enticement of political influence, uh, is, is you really, uh, lay the blame, though, understandable as it is, uh, you really, I think, lay the blame, uh, on, on Billy Graham. Um, and, and we tend to think of Jerry Falwell and the moral majority as, as the beginning of that story. Uh, but I, I really would date it to, um, you know, 1952 and, and Graham's courtship of, of Eisenhower. So uh, the excesses that develop and, and really culminate in 2016 were a long time coming for uh, prominent white evangelicals.
1: Yeah, Tommy, so you've already mentioned the the rise of the moral majority, you know, which is coming more out of these culture wars and how this is really a continuation of a spiritualization of the anti-communist sentiment. That was yeah. already permeating in the in the 50s, but you have this strange moment in the evangelical movement with the moral majority of evangelicals seemingly turning away from one of their own, and and the the first openly evangelical president and rallying behind um, you know the the Republican Party. Um, in particular, um, what what led to that event where somehow the the tides had shifted to where now um, the evangelical movement gets linked in with the GOP instead of um, individual believers of character?
0: Right. Well, uh, I, I think that it does have to do partly with the the Cold War legacy um, that that the, the support is not necessarily for individual believers uh, as politicians, although that's great when you can get that. But, you know, who's going to be tough on communism? Yeah. Um, who's going to be tough on, on the Soviets? Uh, and, and, um, and, and also, I think that the GOP uh, cleverly uh, played uh, white evangelicals, um, sometimes with sincerity and sometimes not. Um, by adopting the, the pro-life issue, uh, now this is this is a controversial uh, subject in the in the scholarly literature. There, there are some people who have said that, uh, say, uh, segregation of private schools was a bigger uh, issue with the, the segregation academies that, that were founded uh, widely in the nineteen seventies as a as a backlash against the integration of the especially southern public schools. But uh, that, that, that definitely played a, a role for some evangelicals. But I, I, I think that I would disagree with, with some scholars who have said that the pro-life issue was not a major factor uh, for the, the, uh, the early white evangelical support for the GOP. Um, the, the major uh, e- evangelical outlets, Christianity Today, the National Association of Evangelicals, they all immediately denounced Roe v. Wade uh, when it came down in 1973, uh, the only uh, sort of complex evangelical outlet uh, about that was the Southern Baptist Convention, which as of 1973 was not firmly evangelical. So uh, that, that's some of the confusion about, about that issue. But uh, the GOP, I think, saw, which up to that point had been more pro-choice than the Democrats, uh, they, they saw an opportunity to court, I think, first and foremost, white Catholics, but also uh, white evangelicals uh, with with uh, at least nominal adherence to a pro-life uh, stance. And, and I think for for people like Ronald Reagan, that stance was at least somewhat heartfelt, uh, even though his his first Supreme Court nominee was not pro-life. Uh, Standard Day O'Connor, but but anyway, uh, the, the, there was a, a political calculation that yes, Carter is an evangelical, but he's kind of a left-leaning evangelical, both theologically and culturally, um, and that Reagan is just more dependable uh, on on the issues that evangelicals care about most, even though he's uh, not an evangelical, but he knows how to talk to evangelicals, and he's got a lot of evangelical friends. And so he's he's acceptable on on that level because the issues are are uh, more important. Um, I, I mean, I really think that that, uh, you know, train had already left the station with Eisenhower, who absolutely was not an evangelical uh, and, and had no church affiliation at all when he became uh, president, uh, even though he was named for Dwight Moody. Uh, and so, uh, uh, you, you know, evangelicals were already used going back to the 1950s of affiliating with people like Dwight Eisenhower, Richard Nixon. Uh, and so the the affiliation with Ronald Reagan, in a way, when you uh, compare those previous affiliations, the, the, supporting Reagan was a pretty easy decision for uh, most white evangelical voters. That's great. And so
1: Skipping forward through some other very interesting history that people can <laughs> go get in your book, that brings us to this current flashpoint of, of recent years with the rise of the candidate and then president, now former president Donald Trump. Um, how how do you see the current flashpoints within um, the white evangelical movement um, threatening its cohesiveness as a movement, and and do you see any any, um, hopeful paths forward, uh, for a, uh, coherent, uh, future for an evangelical cause or coalition?
0: Yeah, I, I, uh, I I know that there's plenty of anecdotal evidence of, of, uh, 2016 and 2020 being a real problem for American evangelicalism. Um, and, and I don't, I don't want to downplay that, but I do think it's anecdotal. Um, and and, and I, I, I think that, that um, there's plenty of opportunity for a healthy, functioning evangelical movement uh, go, going forward. And, and I think there will be, um, it, it's just that it's going to be demographically, uh, the, the future of evangelicalism in America. Um, And obviously, around the world, evangelicalism is is not being shaped by controversies over over Donald Trump, at least not in any direct way. Um, But but demographically, the future of evangelicalism in America is going to be shaped more and more by uh, immigrants, uh, especially uh, Hispanics. Who are the, the biggest uh, growth area for evangelicalism, and and their political uh, alignments are also the most up for grabs um, uh, of of Hispanics generally, but also of Hispanic evangelicals. Um, so so that that's I think that is a, a, an enigma for the future of evangelicalism and, and evangelical politics. Uh, that that's the big growth area, uh, and and also among Asian Americans and uh, uh, people from uh, the Caribbean and so forth, and sub-Saharan Africa, those are going to be the the growing areas of American evangelicalism. Meanwhile, uh, the the white evangelical uh, segment is going to become, by percentage, of the evangelical movement is become, going to become less and less, though all, also in control of uh, uh, disproportionate amounts of money and, and political power, um, and 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 the the generation that was formed by the Cold War is also uh, passing from the scene. So um, you know, I I think the the you know reality of uh you know lived religion for the evangelical movement as, as they say, um, it is going to be fine. Um, but it, it's, it's not going to continue to be uh, the, the, the monolith to whatever extent it has been a monolith uh, politically and, and, and culturally. It's not going to be that um, as nearly as much in the coming uh, decades because the demographic trends are not just, are just not going to allow it. The problem is is that I don't, I don't know what we're going to do about polls and evangelicals because polls about evangelicals almost always are only talking about white evangelicals uh, by design. The, they ask people about ethnicity first in the polls, and then if, if you answer anything but white, you don't get asked whether you're an evangelical or not. Um, I'll, I'll let the pollsters worry about that, but that, that is going to become increasingly conspicuous and inappropriate uh, about the evangelical movement in the, in the coming uh, decades as evangelicalism just by definition becomes uh, much more ethnically diverse. It, it already is very ethnically diverse. It's just that the, that, that diversity is almost never represented in polls. Um, so I don't know what what we're going to do about that, but that that's going to become uh, more and more of a problem about the public representation of evangelicals in the coming years.
1: That's right, Tommy. It's it's almost as though the the big one of the big subthemes throughout the book is that um, who is an evangelical is a theological question, even though it's been often treated as a as a political question, and and so you've you've shown that. How we determine how we're defining that term is a big part of it, the, the answer for how it moves forward. Well, it's it's been a, a wonderful time talking about this book, and, and we've, I feel like, only scratched the surface because uh, there's just, we cover so much history in, in these you know, 150 pages or so. I'm curious, Tommy, uh, what are you working on at the moment? What can we be looking forward to coming out from you in the future?
0: Um, my most immediate uh, project—I always have a couple things in the hopper—but but, but uh, my next book, Lord Welling, that will come out is a, a book on Thomas Jefferson. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of moral biography of Thomas Jefferson and trying to understand, um, you know, how all of this fit together about his religious beliefs and the Jefferson Bible. Uh, and his, his skepticism and yet his great familiarity with the Christian tradition and fascination, uh, near obsession with the Bible. Um, and, and then his, the way he lived, most obviously, uh, owning slaves and his relationship with Sally Hemings. Um, I'm, I'm just doing a book that's trying to put all that together. And uh, the tentative title is Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. Mm. Uh, so so hopefully that'll be out uh, next year well i
1: can't wait to get my hands uh, on a copy of it Um, (laughs) so looking forward to it Uh, well this has been a conversation with thomas s kidd author of who is an evangelical the history of a movement in crisis you can get your copy now from yale university press tommy thanks so much for joining us thanks for having me And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of New Books in Christian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. You can go to newbooksnetwork.com and find all sorts of author interviews in any academic discipline that you can imagine. And if you enjoy this episode, the most important thing you can do is if you can think of anyone who might have found the conversation that Tommy and I had here today interesting, send them a link. That's the best way to share what we're trying to do here. At the New Books Network. That's it for now. I hope you have a great day.